Hey, good morning. Welcome if you're joining us online. If you're in the room, welcome. Thank you for joining us. It's just me right now, but I'm glad you're here. Hey, uh, listen, um, if you're online, tuning in, whether you're on Facebook or YouTube or the uh, online campus, every week I love to have you send me a picture of where you are watching it and make sure you send your name with it. And if you'll do that, that'll help me, it'll encourage me, and I'll pray for you this week for sure. If you're in the room and you wanna do the same, take a little selfie where you are, send me your name, picture, all that good stuff. Love to see your masked faces. Uh, so my cell phone number, 207-608-1106. Write it down if you're in the room. I don't care if you have it. Every telemarketing agency does anyway. So you might as well have it. Um, and if there's anything I can ever do for you, send me a text. Don't call me because I won't answer the phone. I'm just gonna be honest with you. Uh, if your number's not in my contact book, I don't answer it. But send me a text. And if I can't help you, there's somebody that can, I'm sure. So, uh, but, so if you're online, 207-608-1106. I feel like I'm at like a telethon. Um, so uh, send me a selfie of where you are. Give me the names of the people in the picture. That would be great. So I did this on the online campus this morning. I was hosting my own little watch party back there as we were going. And I wanted to share with you a picture that somebody sent me. Can we put that up there? Our tech people are awesome. I just sent this to them. This is Kristen and Bear. And, uh, and Kristen said, she said, this is Kristen and Bear. This is the Coleman's. And they said that they're coming and they're tuning in from Children's Hospital. And I said, I asked her, I said, well, what's going on? And this is what she said. She said, Bear has COVID for the second time, has a chronic lung disease from being so premature, can't keep up his O2 levels. Prayer for the family, please. Uh, the COVID restrictions, no siblings are allowed, family split up. I, I said, we'll be praying for you. And I asked her if I could share this with everybody. And she, this is what she said. She said, yes, that would be wonderful. We're going through a lot of medical stress. Uh, medical stress again. Lux had eye surgery on Monday and made it another. And Bear is going to uh, have a major surgery on his skull that will include taking the forehead and orbital bones outside of his head to reconstruct them. Uh, we'd appreciate prayers for strength and perhaps more of all persistence and resilience. And this to me is, is why we do this. Um, so that we can get to know one another, so that we can be the hands and feet of God. And so I thought it'd be great for us just as a community to pause and pray for the Coleman family, if that's all right with you. It's not on the schedule. And we didn't rehearse this, but it, if that's okay, why don't we do that? All right, if you're tuning in online, just pray with me as we join our hearts for the Coleman family. Lord, thank you for technology that can keep us connected. And thank you for this beautiful, wonderful family that's a part of the Crossroads community. Thank you that we can pray. Thank you that prayer works. Thank you that prayer is important, that prayer brings encouragement and healing in so many ways. And so we pray for the Coleman family and all that they're facing, Lord. We pray that you would be with Bear, that you would heal his body, that you would uh, be with his family, encourage them, be with the doctors, give them wisdom. And Lord, we pause and we pray for the hundreds of pictures that we don't have of similar types of difficulties and circumstances right now. Uh, we pause and pray for all those families that are affected by the deaths of COVID, by COVID, by the fires, everything that we've been talking about today. We thank you again, Lord. I'm so grateful for this technology that can keep us connected during this time and that truly the gates of hell will not prevail over your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you for doing that. And I hope you'll pray for the Coleman family uh, this week. And th that's why it's important. I love, I love the little things we can do to just kind of do ministry this time of the year. 
COVID season is crazy. Well, it's good to see everybody. If you're a guest today, my name is Ryan. I'm the lead pastor here at Crossroads. And uh, over here to my left, your right, is our founding pastor, John Smith, who absolutely hates it when I do that. But I always love it when I get to see John here. So he comes in and he takes messages on the notes and critiques me, um, sends me all kinds of uh, wonderful warm. He's always so encouraging. You should know that. Like, he really is so encouraging to me. Like, I give the worst talk ever. And he's like, that was awesome. Like, he's just, it's so great. So that 25 bucks I give him every week goes really far for my self-esteem. So uh, it's great to see everybody here. Even if you're not the founding pastor, I'm glad that you're here. Um, It's plaid season here in Colorado, so I thought I'd go for it. So you're welcome. So hopefully this makes the message a little bit easier. Uh, Here, we're talking about peace. We're talking about hope is found when peace is found. If you haven't been around for the last few weeks, if you're tuning in online, this is the first time you've jumped on, I would encourage you to go back and watch the past couple of weeks uh, and just kind of keep up because this is one of those series of talks that really does build off of one another. And uh, this week, I want to talk about how do we begin the peacemaking journey? Where does it start? Where does peace start? And I will say this, if you are just jumping in, when I use the word peace, I'm talking about peace from a scripture perspective, from really that originated within the Hebrew Bible, and that is the idea of wholeness. Not just lack of conflict, but wholeness, fullness, uh, equity, justice, righteousness, all of these things. And so the question we're asking is, where does it begin? Now, some people you're watching, you might think, well, I know where peace and wholeness begins. It begins uh, with good economic policy. Like we need to develop an economic strategy and that will elevate everyone. That will give everyone the opportunity that's required to create some sense of a, a level playing field. And it, it, it starts with economics, right? And, and it, this is the way in which many people would vote as a citizen of their country, of America or whatever country, if you're in a democracy, we might vote based on economics, right? And some people think that it all begins with, it can't begin with uh, just economics. It's gotta start with the right political philosophy. Like we need a whole philosophy of how to establish and maintain order within our society. And if we can just get the right political philosophy, that will then trickle into and affect our economic policies and create an atmosphere for wholeness and peace. And that's a very common way of thinking. It's a very common way in which we put our trust and we say, well, I'm gonna trust the political system. I'm gonna trust uh, that we can actually establish this through that mechanism. And then there are some people that say, no, 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 no. Economics, that's not gonna do it. Political systems, that's not going to do it. They say, no, religious orthodoxy. Religious orthodoxy is where it's at. If we could just get everybody believing the same thing, the right thing, then we'll have peace. Now, if you're like me and you hear those, you you would say you maybe know someone or maybe that's you. You've had moments in your life where you say, yeah, I really did. I did think or I do think that this is it. But if we're honest... Those three things that we oftentimes think are like the very way in which we establish uh, an ecosystem for peace to flourish have actually produced some of the most violent periods in our history, like economic wars, political wars. I mean, we don't know anything about that. Religious wars. In fact, the, the greatest way that you can actually create all kinds of havoc and lack of peace in the world the way to do violence without ever feeling bad about it. You want to know how to do that? You just attach God to it. You just say, well, I'm just doing this for the right belief system. God told me I'm doing this. I mean, we have a whole history of, uh, of religion and it continues on that if you do violence in God's name, you will never lose a bit of sleep over it. 
because you feel righteous in what we're doing. And the reality is life has shown us, reality has shown us that these systems cannot bring wholeness. They cannot bring peace in and of themselves. And so I wanna talk about what the scripture kind of gives as the foundational beginning of peace and how it all begins and how the path of peace begins. And I'm gonna just give it to you right at the beginning. I don't want you to be confused. I want you to be ready for the quiz at the end of today, okay? And so uh, here's the first fill-in. If you're a fill-in-the-blank person, if you're watching online, you're doing the fill-ins or if uh, you're eating some snacks at home, and this is a good thing to just pause on the snacks for just a second. Here's what I'm gonna talk about. Jesus is the Prince of Peace who reveals the path of peace. Jesus is the one. And, and we're gonna look at some scriptures and look at some ways in which Jesus does this, but this is the heartbeat of today, is that Jesus is the, the Prince of Peace. We get this title, and he reveals the path of peace. And he really does bring it into deep clarity. And I want to start with just kind of looking at a couple of ways this happens. We're going to look at three big symbols, three big things that we celebrate in the life of the Christian church that help us see why Jesus is the Prince of Peace, why Jesus is the one that initiates and holds and sustains and offers a path to wholeness. Okay, so let's take a look at this image. What does this picture remind you of? If you're watching online, say it out loud right there in the room. Talk to the TV. It'll look weird, but that's okay. What is this picture of? Christmas. Christmas. And what's the big image of Christmas? What, what do you, what's, the, what's the image, the symbol within Christmas? We always come to the, the birth of Jesus, which happened in what? In what? A manger. Thank you, Barry. Give this guy a piece of candy from the candy. Uh, I know Rod's got a pocket full. Guy's got a sweet tooth like nobody's business, right? The manger, right? I was digging in. You guys kept going. You were getting there eventually. The manger, right? It's this symbol, right, of where Jesus was born. And, this, and we love to quote this passage that we have taken from and we interpret it in the lens of Jesus. We ta we've taken it from the Hebrew scriptures, uh, which when it was first written, I can promise you that the writer of this passage in Isaiah was not thinking about Jesus but we've taken it and we say, no, this is really the heartbeat. This is what's happening. This is how we interpret the Bible through the lens of Jesus. It says, for a child is born to us. A son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called. You could probably say it with me if you've been around. You don't have to even be a church person, but you've heard it in song. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of, say it out loud, Peace, peace. Prince of Peace. This is where we get this title for Jesus because we take this passage as a foreshadowing of the work that Jesus, who would become and would be called, I say become, I gotta be careful when I say that, he would be called the son of God. And believe it or not, I honestly believe this, that the disciples did not understand Jesus as son of God. That would take hundreds of years for us to articulate as a movement, as a, as a faith. So when I say he became the son of God, I mean, that's the understanding. I think Jesus was always the son of God, but that title really became more known over hundreds of years of trying to figure out who exactly was this Jesus. But the manger itself, right? This birth of Jesus, this entrance of Jesus into the world is, and it begins this path of peace for us because it reveals, Jesus reveals the true nature of God. Right? So Jesus, we think of Jesus as the Prince of Peace because Jesus' life, his teaching, his death, everything reveals the absolute true nature of God. And we call this the incarnation. How many of you ever heard of the word incarnation? Right? That's a new word for a lot of us, right? And that, that's cool. It's, it's a fancy word that helps me feel important, okay? The incarnation just simply means this is the doctrine, the belief that, that most Christians hold that in Jesus of Nazareth, God was made flesh, and so Jesus would say things like, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. 
And Paul would write in his letters that Jesus was the image of the invisible God. Or he would say, in him, in Jesus, dwells the fullness of deity. And here's why this was important. Because, I don't know if you know this or not, we have a really hard time understanding God. Would you agree with that? Like, do you have God figured out? Anybody in the room got God completely figured out? I hope not. I mean, because Jesus was walking around, God in the flesh, and the disciples didn't even get it. Right? I mean, the reality is, God is a complex idea. (laughs) And, and, And the truth is, we kind of messed it up. We didn't really understand God, and we still don't understand God fully. There's great mystery. And so Jesus comes to kind of set the record straight and to set us down a path of peace. Because for all of human history and the way in which we understood God, the way in which uh, we thought about the gods as a human species was always that God's required sacrifice. You know, we can't find really any culture in the world that at one point in time didn't practice human sacrifice to the gods. From an anthropological perspective, it seems that this was very common. And it seems that what happens within like the Abrahamic religion, like within Judaism, was this new development that maybe God doesn't want human sacrifices. Right? The only way, if you're familiar with the story of Abraham and the binding of Isaac, or it's often called the sacrifice of Isaac, but he was never sacrificed, so the binding of Isaac is a little bit better way to think of it. The only way that story would have ever made sense to its original audience was to know that at one point in time, human sacrifice was fairly commonplace. It was the way in which you kept the gods happy. And so we inherited as human beings an understanding of, of, of the gods and of a god that was very violent, that demanded sacrifice. And I happen to believe that God in his grace, or her grace, right, that in God's grace, God works within our development over time. And so Jesus comes to say, we've got it wrong. And it's baked into the scriptures. We have lots and lots of places. And it's not just the New Testament. It's, it's, there, in the prophet, it's there in the prophetic voice where God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And God says things like, your uh, festivals are like, they stink. I don't want to have anything to do with them. Like your religious practices, get rid of them. I don't want them. Like it's all written in there. Like, but we're just struggling and trying to figure it out. And God is so gracious. But Jesus comes at just the right time when our human conscience could begin to kind of turn the corner and start to think differently about God. And so one of the earliest kind of hymns or songs or poems about Jesus, we find in the letter of Philippians, which is a letter that Paul wrote. And this is probably one of the most ancient kind of creedal statements about the work of Jesus. In Philippians chapter two, verse six through 11, it says, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he emptied himself taking the form of a slave, coming in human likeness. This is the incarnation. This is it spoken in kind of theological words. And it's this big theological idea of kenosis. You guys are learning such cool words today. How fun is this? If you're a guest today, I never talk about these kinds of words. Like you are getting it for free, okay? So the Greek word here is kenosis. And it's this idea of emptying oneself out that this was what Jesus did, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God as something to hold on to, but poured out, some translations say, but emptied himself of all divine privilege. 
this kenosis, right? That's what this is. Kenotic is the like uh, adjective. Like the kenotic way of living is a self-emptying way of existing. And this is the nature of God as revealed in Jesus. And this goes on, this hymn goes on and says, and found in human appearance, Jesus humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. In other words, what we see in Jesus is that the nature of God is another cool word, cruciform. It's cruciform. It's shaped like the cross. Now, I can promise you, nobody saw this one coming. Nobody was looking for God to show up and and suffer. Nobody. That's why it was so challenging. That's why it took hundreds and hundreds of years to formulate a, a fragile understanding and framework that we're still developing because it's hard for us to fathom and grasp that God would be one who suffers that God would be one that would pour out God's self, that would not claim privilege, that would not claim power, but would change the world through something completely different, a structure that no one would have ever thought of. But in God's providence, that moment in time was just the right moment that through a small group of people who had no business changing the world, God would use. God would use for our benefit. And so what Jesus does is Jesus reveals God's true nature as suffering and self-emptying. And in so doing, showing this is what it means to be all-powerful, to be able to suffer and to be able to pour yourself out for those that are suffering. God was a suffering and God is a suffering God, a self-emptying God. And so what we learn here is that God's victory, what Jesus is showing us and what we're still learning, how we're still evolving and understanding God, but it's founded in this simple but profound and completely paradoxical statement. God's victory comes through overwhelming love, not overwhelming force. This is what Jesus shows us. And this is what we will always wrestle with because we are people who love force. We are people who love power. We are people who love might. And God is desperately always emptying God's self, showing this is not the way to conquer. To create victims is not the way of victory in the cross. This commitment to creating no more victims, this is what Jesus does and shows this is how God works and functions. So we then go back and we interpret and understand scripture. We understand God through this lens, through this fundamental revelation in Christ, that God is not found in the violence. God is found in the suffering. God has found this of emptying. And where there's violence and where there's creation of victims, there's the human imagination and understanding and interpretation taking place. And there's God who's so gracious to go, oh, you just don't get it. But I'll love you and I'll work with you. And God takes us along. One theologian says that we've matured as a, as a faith uh, one year for every century we've been in existence. So Christianity is just right now coming into its 20s. Some of you are laughing because you're now like 50 or 60 and you're like, oh Lord, help me. My 20s, if that's where, right? But that's the idea, this idea that it takes that much time for us to develop and grow and for God to continue to work. But this idea that God's victory, and God is victorious. Like don't make any mistake about it. God is the great victor, is 100%, I believe, accurate and true and being worked out. But it's not and never will come through violence. It never will come through creating victims. It will always come through overwhelming love, a love that overwhelms and conquers all. 
And no better place to see this in our second, than in our second image. And I'm gonna try and watch the clock today because I've been talking for way too long the last couple of weeks, okay? There's no place more to see this. And where this is lived out fully is the image of the cross. And Easter, right? We celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus at Easter time. And this image, right? This is where we talk about, and this is where we live out. And this is where we say, this is kind of, this is kind of where it happened. Where, where did what happen? Where John 3.16 happened. If you've ever been to a football game or watched a football game, you know that's the favorite one to hold up, right? I wish somebody would just hold up John 3.17. Because it's, it's, it's way better, if I can say that, it's way better than John 3.16. John 3.16 doesn't make any sense without John 3.17. It really doesn't. But, but this is what we celebrate. We celebrate the when it happened in a sense, or when it began to happen is probably a better way to put it more accurately. John 3, 16 and 17 says, for this is how God loved the world, right? How that, how that love overpowers and overwhelms is he gave his one and only son. Now, nowhere in this passage, I just want it to be said, nowhere does it say that he sent his son to die on a cross. Doesn't say that. It says he gave his one and only son. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Now here's John three seventeen. This is the kicker. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. Everybody say world. world. I don't know if y'all believe that or not. The world. world. I grew up that God only saved the ones who were just lucky enough to live in the right zip code who could say the right prayer. But when I really look at scripture, when I really dig in, when I really see how powerful love is, I believe that God is saving the world. Because that's how powerful love is. That's how powerful self-sacrifice and self-giving is. And so at the end of the day, Jesus, the Prince of Peace, through the cross, through his death and resurrection, he heals the world of our sin. He heals our world of sin. Now, I say that specifically because for too long, Christianity has reduced sin to my personal hood, my person, just me. My per- Jesus saves me from my sins. But I want to talk today about, uh, I think, a more profound and a, a more powerful way of understanding sin that goes far beyond the little things that I do, right? I just want to break the news to everybody you and I are gonna mess up. Like we're going to do those little sins, right? We're, go- we're gonna do those things, even if you think it's a big one, we're gonna do them. Doesn't mean we should love it, doesn't mean we should run to it, but we should probably like relax a little bit about it because it seems like Jesus was pretty relaxed about it in some sense, right? We should recognize it, but let's talk about the bigger issue that produces those little things in our lives that make us a good girl or a good boy. Because those types of things really are the symptoms of a bigger thing called sin. And it is the sin of this world that Jesus walked into to help us open our eyes to it and to overcome it. This is a sin that produces death in our lives. This is a sin that produces hell in this world right here and right now. And this is the work that we call atonement. Jesus comes and he brings atonement. He brings us back into union with God. By what? By getting rid of really bad understandings of God and showing us God's love. So we have to ask the question, what is sin? What is sin? Well, certainly a part of sin are those moral things that we do that harm one another and harm us. And they separate us from one another. You've experienced this. You got into an argument with your spouse. You said something you shouldn't have said. What happens? 
you separate, right? There's this movement away from one another. What happens when you forgive one another? What happens when you suffer through forgiveness? When you offer grace, when you know you're right, right guys? (laughs) You come back together. So this, this, this work of atonement is what we celebrate in the cross in the resurrection. Here's how Paul talks about sin in Romans chapter seven. Paul says that he was sold into slavery to sin. And that doesn't sound like this is what I do is sin. It sounds like something else. So Paul's saying like sin is a master. It has a controlling effect on our lives. He goes on and he says this, this is super easy to understand. Now, if I do what I do not want, I concur that the law is good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. You got that one, right? No problem. We can just move right on. (laughs) Right? Paul's saying, hey, listen, like I recognize that what I just did was bad. And the reason why that's bad is because the law somehow informs me of that. And because my internal being tells me I shouldn't have done that, then I'm saying that, boy, this law is good. But because I can know it, because I did it, and there's something inside me that's like, that's gross, then I know what's happening is not me. It's not my true self. It's sin that's in me. So this sin, this master is internal. That kind of freaks you out, right? <laughs> like it's in me, it's in you. Before it ever manifests as a harsh spoken word, before it ever manifests as a lie at work, before it ever manifests into whatever that is that breaks relationship, those actions, sin exists internally and it has a sway and control. And then Paul kind of repeats himself, but he gives a little nuance. He says, now if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it. Isn't that interesting? But sin that dwells in me. That's like the devil made me do it right there. (laughs) But what is Paul saying? Paul is saying, listen, sin is an oppositional force. It's, It's in me and it's opposing what God wants to do through me, right? You know those like really funny cartoon characters where you got like the devil on one side and the angel on the other, right? And we laugh at that, but really Paul's kind of talking a little bit of that, what's going on inside of us. That inside each and every one of us, there's a bit of God and there's a bit of the devil. <laughs> there's a bit of sin. And sin holds this power and it is an oppositional force. And here's what I would like to, and I don't have time to kind of share with you all the reasons why I believe this, but I think scripture reveals over time through, through a series of stories and themes that the great sin, that oppositional force that holds us back from what God wants for us in our lives, what holds us back from peace is a fundamental lie that we are separated from God. It's a fundamental lie that we are not forgiven. It's a fundamental lie that we somehow have to earn God's love. It's a fundamental lie that God is more concerned about the little things that we do or don't do that keeps us away from God. Well, some theologians call this a delusional separation. It's a separation that doesn't actually exist. And it feeds a bigger lie that there's something out there that can make me whole. There's something out there that can, that can somehow take away this separation. If I just work hard enough, if I just get this job, if I just make this, then, then I'll earn love in general from one another and we put it into God. And so this lie of separation, sin, we'll call it, it creates wounded people and people who wound in our attempt to restore some relationship that we believe is broken because God is out there and we're here. We just go around and we create violence and we just think we have it all and we hurt one another 
And it comes from a place of wound. It comes from this lie. And so what I'd like to say is I believe what Jesus reveals to us and what I think this big theme and where God is taking humanity is that Jesus is saving us from sin, that lie, not from God. Not from God. That the cross is not an appeasement of God's wrath. The cross is not an, a, a way in which God can now forgive us. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 I'm showing you that you're not separated. There is no emptiness. There's no, the way of God is suffering. The way of God is love. The way of God is overcoming and conquering this. Because Jesus walked around on this earth correcting these behaviors. So he went up to those who were oppressed, who were under this belief system that if you were sick, if you were poor, if you were suffering, it was God's punishment. And he went around offering liberation to them. And you know how he did it? He would say, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. He entered into our broken understanding of things. And boy, did this make the religious people angry, right? All the pastors like me, we were flipping out, at least in the story. There were, I think, some good ones. But the ones we get to hear about are the pastors of the day going, you don't have the right to forgive sins. Who do you think you are? Just, oh, well, your sins are forgiven too. I mean, Jesus would just forgive sins. There was no death on a cross. There was no blood spilled. Jesus is just forgiving sins. You're forgiven, 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 forgiven. You don't realize it, but you're forgiven. You're all forgiven. Sin doesn't have to have a hold on you. It's the way in which you think about God. So some would say that Jesus came not to change God's mind about us, but to change our minds about God. And that's the beauty of this work. That in this work of Christ, in the cross, in a cruciform God, the oppressed find liberation, which is a type of forgiveness of sin, and the oppressors find forgiveness of sin in their oppressing. That there is a path to be transformed and changed. But what has been the big debate and the big argument is how does this actually work? And this is what divides everybody. How does it work? Is the cross a, a, a paid ransom? Some of you might've heard that phrase before. So there's all these different theories about atonement that Christians believe. And some Christians believe in a very literal blood that needed to be shed by Jesus on the cross to fulfill the sacrificial system, to end it. And they think about this in terms of a ransom. They think of there's a ransom theory of atonement. There's a satisfaction theory of atonement. There's the Christus Victor theory of atonement. There's the penal substitution theory of atonement. There's the last scapegoat theory of atonement. There's the moral influence theory of atonement. And then there's my favorite, the longest one of all, the nonviolent narrative Christus Victor theory of atonement. <laughs> Why? Because it's fun to try and figure out how this all works. But atonement theory is not the gospel story. We are always going to be trying to figure out and think through, and some of us will, how did it actually work? How does it work? And I do think it's important the way we think about atonement, because if we don't think about it in terms of Jesus's suffering and identity with the poor, if we think of it in terms of a, a God that needs blood to be appeased, we end up with a very harmful version of God that empowers us to do harmful things. Now, do I believe that the death of Jesus was unfortunately necessary? Yeah, I just think it was. I believe there's a mystery to it. And I believe what makes his death even more beautiful and more meaningful for my life 
was that it really wasn't necessary on God's part, but it was necessary for me. That for me to understand how to love, for me to understand how I'm loved, it took that kind of love to submit to the violence of this world. That's what it means to say that God is love. And the final image that we have of Jesus being this pathway to peace, opening up a doorway, is, is found where Jesus is talking about what he's going to leave his followers. In John 14, Jesus says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give it to you. There's a whole different way of, of thinking about wholeness and peace that I'm gonna bring to you supernaturally. And we have this image of the dove that represents this idea of the Holy Spirit. We celebrate Pentecost at some measure, which is this, this moment where we visibly got to see what God has been doing forever and ever, pouring out God's self into us now in a way that we can understand through the life of Jesus. We put it all together. And so now we have this great symbol of the spirit of God, this person, this third person of the Trinity at work in our world, moving and motivating and bringing peace and wholeness through followers of Jesus. And this is the power of these symbols that peace and wholeness and salvation and growth all comes from the power that's in these symbols. In particularly, the blood, it's a symbol. The death, the resurrection, the life. When I say the blood of Jesus, not just the blood that was spilled, but the blood that coursed through his veins, that provided life to this mortal body that he walked around in and breath to him, that he could speak things like, blessed are the poor and blessed are those who weep and mourn that would speak forgiveness, that would walk around that the blood that would provide a hand that could reach out and touch the untouchable. The blood that would provide the hand that would turn over the tables in the court of the temple, that would speak against the injustices that were taking place, that, that there was a whole temple system of economics that had turned a house that was meant to be prayer into a house of economics, into a way of separating people that would take advantage of them. So we have these beautiful images of the manger. We have this beautiful image of the cross, the empty tomb, and we have a beautiful image of the dove that brings us into right now. All those things come together and fuel our faith, fuel our ability to follow Jesus. Andrew Sung Park wrote a book called The Triune Atonement where he talks about the power of symbols. And he says, for the oppressed, the blood of Jesus, it is a symbol that God participates in your suffering that God is present in it, that God can overcome in the midst of it. And to the oppressor, the blood of Jesus is a symbol that, is a, that, that God is confronting and challenging the unrighteousness of our behavior. That the blood cries out. If you're familiar with the story of Cain and Abel, Cain, his brother, the brother of Abel, in this great story in Genesis, kills his brother Abel, Cain kills Abel. And the Bible says that Abel's blood cried out to God from the ground, that God saw the suffering. God saw the injustice and it cried out and God appears to Cain and says, where's your brother? And Cain says, I don't know, I don't know, what am I gonna, I don't know. He says, the blood of your brother cries out to me. And in that same metaphor, in that same beauty, the blood of Christ will continually cry out to the Father until all injustices are taken away, until all pain is removed, until all sorrow is lost. That is the power of that image. But you know what's so powerful? You know what, Jesus, you know what the Father does? You know what God does uh, to Cain? He strikes him dead to get him back. 
No, he doesn't. If you don't know the story, you know what he does? He puts a mark on him and he protects him and he sends him out. He offers forgiveness and grace and protection, even for the oppressor, which we can't understand, but that's the power of love. So for the oppressed and the oppressor, there is liberation and there is forgiveness in Jesus. And Jesus gives us this universal path to peace. And what is this path? It's trusting in the mystery of God's love. That it is a mystery. It is a mystery how it works. And we grow in that mystery and we become immersed in that mystery and it overwhelms our uh, opinions, it overwhelms our certainty and it calls us into a love that brings liberation to the oppressed and freedom and forgiveness to the oppressor. And here's the kicker. You and I, we're this big paradox because we are the oppressed and we are the oppressor. We are the sinner and we are the sinned against. And so we need the fullness of this picture in our lives. Paul put it this way in Ephesians. It says, for by grace, you have been saved through faith, created in Christ Jesus for the good works that God has prepared in advance that we should live in them. Faith equals trust. This grace that God has and always had, it's not that God never had grace. We weren't ready for it. We don't know how to comprehend that kind of love. We have to develop and understand it. We have to get close to the ones we call sinners. We have to get close to the ones that we say are the problem. And in getting close to the sinner and the problem, we're transformed and changed. And we trust God in the middle of it all. And that's what it is. And so in your everyday life, in my everyday life, the invitation, whether you're sitting in this room, whether you're watching online, is to start trusting in this revelation of Jesus, that you are loved by God, you are created in God's image, and there is nothing that you could ever do that will cause God to love you any less or any more than God does right now. That God is at work in this world, and we have the opportunity to submit and surrender ourselves to this love and allow it to transform us and to change us to be people who are committed to doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly with God. And that is what it means to follow Jesus. Start following Jesus on this path to peace. That's the invitation. And that's what we're gonna explore next week. What does it mean to be a disciple of this one? If this is what Jesus reveals, what does it mean to follow that one? But if we'll make these commitments to, you know what, I'm gonna live in this truth. I'm gonna surrender myself to the love of God as expressed through Jesus, that I am loved by God, that I am whole by God and allow God to transform me, allow God to shape me, to move myself away from this punitive understanding of God, allow myself to move away from that and into the fullness of God where God works at all things for our good and for the good of this world, for those who are called according to his purpose and love him, then I can start to move in and I'll bring hope to this world because I'll start participating with Jesus in bringing God's universal kingdom, his, pre, his peace on this earth. Jesus called it a kingdom, not of this world. He went around in Matthew 50 times in the gospel of Matthew, Jesus talks about this kingdom. It's present, it's near, it's at hand, it's here, it's present. He's in front of Pilate, right? And he says, yes, I am a king, but my kingdom's not of this world. If it were of this world, more my fathers, they'd be taking up arms, but that's not it. It's a totally different kingdom. And we get a vision of this kingdom in the craziest book of the whole Bible that a lot of people think should have never been put in there. And sometimes I think it shouldn't have been put in there, but it's in there. So I got to believe it's inspired for some strange reason. We got to try and make sense of it. And in Revelation, we get this beautiful picture of what we're living in right now. 
We're living in this vision right now, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and race and people and tongue. They stood before the the throne and before the lamb and they cried out in a loud voice. Salvation comes from our God who is seated on the throne and from the lamb. Key word there is lamb. The victory that comes from God is not through power. It was through the cross and it will always be through the cross. And any reading of any passage of scripture that moves you to violence is not from the spirit of God. It's from us and our fragile nature and the way in which we think and what we want to do. We want to just get power and get our guns and get our weapons and we'll win. But Jesus reveals that's not the way of salvation. The way of salvation is the way of suffering. It's the way of self-emptying and trusting in this great mystery. And here's the beauty of it. Oh, I trust, just trust me. And we're gonna sing a song and we're out of here. But here's the beauty of this whole thing. God will become bigger than you ever imagined when you embrace mystery. When you embrace mystery and recognize that we're trying to figure it out, and when you start to see the patterns where they're even trying to figure it out within the pages of scripture, you start to see the beauty of the inspiration of this text. That even within the pages of scripture, in one passage, an action will be attributed to God, but then hundreds of years later, the same story is told, it's retold, but it's no longer God who did it. It's a different, it's like, the deceiver did it, right? There's a great story in the Hebrew Bible that's found in a book called Second Samuel and in a book called First Chronicles or Second Chronicles. And they're written hundreds of years apart from one another. And in one version, the earliest version, it says that God incited David and caused David to, to give a census. And this, this brought a lot of anger to God and God brought punishment to the Israelites because of it. But then if you read that same story, hundreds of years later, interpreted through the chronicler's eyes, it changes. It doesn't say that God caused David to, it says the deceiver, the deceiving one came and caused David to give a census. Like within the scripture, this evolution of thought of God is happening. It's the beauty of the Bible. It's two steps forward, one step backward. It's the struggle. We're all trying to figure out who God is and it should bring us to a place of humility, which is what we talked about last week, that the wisdom from above is first of all, humble. So I don't have it. And so God becomes bigger and bigger and we can rest in it. There's a line in this song that says, I will rest in the Father's hands and leave the rest in the Father's hands. What's God inviting you into today? What is the Spirit whispering to you? As they sing this song, just open your heart up to what God would speak to you today. How God wants to move you into a place of more love, more grace, more inclusion, more trust in God.